Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The last few years have seen a revival of studies of the campaign of Petersburg. Once seen by many as just an undifferentiated siege lasting months, closer study reveals a series of distinct battles, each of which equaled or surpassed better-known battles in terms of numbers engaged and casualties suffered. Scholars have come to grips with some of these battles individually, fine books by Summers and Newsom, but now the one person who probably knows the campaign better than anyone else is undertaking to write about the whole thing in three large volumes. We'll talk with A. Wilson Green, author of A Campaign of Giants, The Battle for Petersburg, Volume 1, From the Crossing of the Crater, <laughs> From the Crossing of the James to the Crater, and we'll talk with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building, our usual haunt here on the campus of East Carolina University, but not speaking for ECU or its new student center or anybody else, just myself. And as always, our guest will do the same thing tonight. It is good to be back after winter break. This is the first show of calendar year 2019. It's January. It's a little bit cold outside. 
there is a new student center here on campus, which is a welcome addition. This was promised when I came here. I remember on my first visit to campus as a, a prospective employee of the institution, and they said, oh, yes, we're, we're planning on a new student center soon, and that was 2003. So 2019, January, uh, better late than never, it actually has finally been built and opened, and looks pretty nice. So uh, in April every year, our department, history department here, holds National History Day for the region, for high schoolers and middle schoolers, and we've always brought these hundreds of kids into the student center, the old one. It'll be interesting to see how they fit in the new facility. Uh, but generally, good to have progress, good to have the new building up and construction down. It is, as I said, the first show of the new year. We finished up in December with uh, a very entertaining, at least for me, uh, conversation with Peter Carmichael at the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. Uh, and since that time, I've had a few weeks off, as we do at the winter break, spent a lot of the time uh, driving back and forth between Greenville, North Carolina, and uh, first Michigan, and then Illinois, a total of 50 hours behind the wheel over the break. It was, it was kind of a lot, uh, but had a chance to visit with the number one fan of Civil War talk radio, my mother, uh, up in Michigan, and uh, then the second trip was to drop off my youngest daughter, who is starting her life as an adult, a college graduate, has a new job in Chicago. You may remember her from my reports on the Greenville Stars youth soccer team many years ago, 10 years ago now. Um, no longer uh, vying for playing time with the other 8th or ninth graders. She is now starting her own life uh, at, at, as the bumper sticker said uh, that I saw on the highway at one point damn, I got old fast. On the way, uh, I did take time on the way home from one of those trips to veer off the uh, interstate and visit the battlefield at Carnifex Ferry, West Virginia. There's a state battlefield park. If you're ever in that neighborhood, I would say it's worth a stop. It's uh, a fascinating drive up the mountain through scenes of incredible natural beauty contrasted with uh, distressing scenes of grinding poverty, but when you get to the top, it is a tiny but evocative battlefield park uh, and also a recreational park, and uh, there was no one there on a cold day in December, cold rainy day. The The building, museum was closed, everything was closed, but it was interesting to see it, and you get a spectacular view of the Gauley River below, so worth your while. Indeed, always worthwhile to visit Civil War places. I mentioned uh, Peter Carmichael a minute ago. He hosts at Gettysburg College the annual Civil War Institute. This year it'll be from June 14 through 19. If you can go, uh, if you can find any way to go, uh, do it. It will be, you'll be glad you did. Uh, and if you tell them that you are a Civil War talk radio listener when you sign up, maybe they will cut you some kind of deal. Likewise, uh, this hallowed ground, the annual Civil War tour that I will be leading on behalf of Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, is going to take place May 18 through 26, and among other sites we will be visiting, places we'll be talking about later today, uh, the Petersburg Battlefield, and I highly recommend that. 
Uh, indeed, I enjoyed the book we're going to talk about tonight very much, and even more so because I'd been able to see those sites uh, as part of uh, these annual tours. We have good shows coming up the rest of the month. Next week, uh, Dr. Alexander B. Racino will be here to discuss his novel, Six Days in September. It's about the Antietam campaign, breaking from the standard rule of, of not doing historical fiction. I, I get a fair number of publicists and others who contact me. They want to have their author on to discuss his or her novel. It's very well-researched. It's very accurate, they say. Uh, and I'm sure they are in most cases. But nonetheless, there is so much nonfiction, so much history being written that uh, we have to draw the line somewhere. But occasionally, and in this case, because we have a trained professional historian turning his hand to fiction, uh, we'll talk about that next week. On the 23rd of January, two weeks from now, Janet Kroon will be here to discuss uh, the work she has edited, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860-1865. The title is The War Outside My Window, and it's a book that's gotten a lot of press in the Civil War community. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to reading it and uh, talking with the editor. And we'll wrap up the month of January with a book co-authored by Jonathan White, uh, an old friend of the show, and Anna Holloway. Uh, uh, she will be our guest and talk about their book called Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. It is a beautifully produced uh, color illustrated volume on the USS Monitor, and I'm very much looking forward to spending time with that book as well. In February, we've got people like Aaron Sheehan-Dean, Caroline Janey, uh, Andrew Delbanco, all joining us on the show, plus a special talk with... Uh, not by someone who writes books, but someone who lives and breathes books, uh, Dan Weinberg at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. So lots coming up in the months ahead. Keep an eye on the Facebook page or the website impedimentsofwar.org, maintained by Mark Gaffney, who performs selflessly on behalf of the show. Thanks always to Mark for doing that. And you can see what's coming up. And thanks to all of you who have contributed to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund uh, it uh, is much appreciated, and, and as a gesture of your support uh, for the show, and, and thank you to those who've done so. Tonight we talk with uh, A. Wilson Green. Will Green is the former director of the Pamplin Historical Park and the National Museum of the Civil War Soldier, a longtime resident of the battlefield, one might say, uh, of the Petersburg campaign, and he is now the author of the first of a series of books on the campaign. This first one is called A Campaign of Giants, The Battle for Petersburg, Volume 1, From the Crossing of the James to the Crater. Uh, it is a pleasure to welcome back to the show, Will Green. Will, are you there? I am there. Thank you, Jerry. It's good to be back with you. Well, it was, it was a real pleasure chatting with you at the Civil War Institute last June, and uh, it has been an extraordinary pleasure reading the your book this week. It's a it's a campaign of giants is the name of the book, and it's a a book of giants. Uh, it, it's uh, six seven hundred pages when we include all the the back matter, and it's only uh, one volume of several. And sometimes in Civil War talk radio, when the publisher sends me a big thick book, I think, oh man, am I really going to read all that this week? 
And this week, I can't get enough of it. It's, it's really good. Um, so I've tipped my hand early in the interview, but uh, well, let me start you. by... Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, so you're, you are retired from Pamplin Park. Um, are you relaxing by the pool? What, what's, uh, what's your lifestyle nowadays? Well, I am not relaxing by the pool. I've got two more of these volumes to write, Jerry, which keeps me uh-huh. out of the opium dens. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, I'm playing a little bit more golf than uh, than I did when I was working, but uh, you know, Father Time is ticking away, and uh, there's a giant monkey sitting on my shoulder, telling me to get these last two volumes done. So uh, I'm pretty much nose to the grindstone, although I'm still getting out and doing uh, a number of talks to various Civil War history groups, and then leading some tours from now and then. So um, I'm trying to, you know, stay uh, stay engaged a little bit and not isolated here on my little mountaintop cabin in Tennessee. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, in, in our email exchange this week you might be in the neighborhood of Greenville, North Carolina, and if you are, um, we should get together for for golf or uh, dinner or something and uh, uh, talk history. But tonight we're doing that with everybody listening. Uh, first question I wanted to ask you was about what I said in the introduction, the renaissance of Petersburg studies. I, I mean, you can look at Gettysburg and you've got books on the first day, the second day, the left flank on the second day, the you know, incredible detailed books on, on each hour practically of the battle. Uh, you move up to the Overland campaign, you've got Ray's wonderful books, each covering a week or so. Now, now, finally, you're the first person to cover the whole campaign on anything approaching that scale. It's still two months per volume, but uh, you know, where well, where is this coming from? You know, uh, you're you're exactly right. Uh, about ten years ago, there really wasn't much written at all on no. on the Petersburg story. There was uh, Dick Summers' magisterial book on the Fifth Offensive called right. Richmond Redeemed, which has been revised. And there was a, uh, a couple of, there were a couple of remarkably good little volumes on Petersburg aspects from the Harold Howard series. Tom Howe did a, a very nice book on the first offensive in June. And uh, Bill Marvel and Mike Cavanaugh did a, a, a very workmanlike job on the crater. But that was, you know, that was just about all there was. Uh, and the Petersburg story seemed to be one of uh, the armies got together, they attacked, the Federals blew up uh, a mine, it mm-hmm. failed, there was a siege, and then there was five forks, and they went on to Appomattox. And uh, for years, living and working in Petersburg, I kept cajoling my comrades, my friends, to say, somebody needs to write, write the history of the whole campaign, and nobody bit so I decided about 2006, after I finished a volume on Civil War Petersburg, the city itself, mm-hmm. I decided to bite the bullet and, and, do it my, and do it myself. But one thing that you know I, I should point out, <clears throat> you, had, you had mentioned the detailed books on Gettysburg and other campaigns. Right. If one was to do a detailed tactical study of the Petersburg story, it wouldn't be three volumes. It'd be probably about 12 or 15 volumes. Uh, so readers who tackle my trilogy here uh, are going to find, I think, an operational level story 
which mm-hmm. provides some tactical detail, but uh, there's been some comments on the Internet I've read that people were disappointed that there wasn't more uh, tactical detail in, in my book. But to do so, uh, I, you know, would require many, many more volumes than, than I have time for or am allowed to write. And I, I just wonder how big that faction is. I, I know there are people who, who, you know, eat that stuff up. You cannot have enough tactical detail. Uh, I will say I'm one for whom I enjoy it, but a little goes a long way. And the level struck here seems, for me, seems just right, that, that you do have vignettes from the individual engagements. You cite individual soldiers' reactions. You talk about uh, some very interesting tactical detail. I want to ask you about uh, Baldy Smith's use of uh, an extended or thickened skirmish line instead of a two-deep mm-hmm. line, uh, for example. But but because it's at a it, you connect it to a higher level of of operation, so it's not just one regimental charge after another for no no apparent outcome. Um, well, you, you had mentioned in your introduction, Jerry, mm-hmm. quite accurately, that there are a number of really good studies of each of mm-hmm. the various aspects of the campaign. Not all of them, but mm-hmm. many of them. And you mentioned uh, Hampton Newsom's yes. wonderful volume on the 6th offensive in October. And, of course, we've already talked about Dick Summers. Now, you know, Dick's book, when it came out in 1980, I think, was about 700 pages. And maybe your listeners don't realize that that was about a 50% reduction of his Ph.D. dissertation, huh. which, is, which is available online. If many, I, I have downloaded it and printed it out. But um, that is on four days of the Petersburg story. So if you want, if you want a, a tactical history, you know, there are opportunities to, to get those types of studies and I certainly hope that my colleagues will continue to do that. There's some gaps in the story. Nobody's written about mm-hmm. the 7th Offensive around Hatcher's Run. Nobody's written about the 2nd Offensive at Jerusalem Plank Road, for example. But there are studies uh, for people who want more tactical detail that are out there. Well, I'd, we're going to have to take a short break and come back and talk about what you've done in this volume. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Our guest tonight is Will Green, author of A Campaign of Giants, The Battle for Petersburg, Volume 1, From the Crossing of the James to the Crater. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus. 
Creating Achilles' Shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with A. Wilson Green, author of A Campaign of Giants, The Battle for Petersburg, Volume 1, From the Crossing of the James to the Crater. Well, this book starts with... uh, it includes a very good, brief summary of the Overland Campaign of May 1864. Our, our you know, listeners all know about Grant and Lee uh, battling each other through from, from the wilderness down to Cold Harbor. Then uh, Grant gives Lee the slip and crosses the James River, this is where the book proper starts, I suppose. Uh, I find that it really, your description increased my uh, astonishment that Grant was able to take such a large army out from under the nose of Robert E. Lee and and cross the James River, which is a mighty river, uh, without being observed. How did that happen? Well, I, you're right that, uh, you know, the story of the opening of the Petersburg campaign is, is a real dichotomy, because Grant's maneuver to the James was brilliant, as you suggest. Mm-hmm. He was able to do things like distract the Confederate cavalry with his raid that wound up at the Battle of Tripolian Station, for example, so that most of Lee's cavalry was away and not available to do the scouting. Uh, he took tremendous um, steps to bluff the Confederate infantry into thinking that he was going to approach Richmond the same way that McClellan did in 1862, on the north side of the James, and then was very careful uh, logistically to provide himself with the means to cross the Chickahominy River, and then with boats and a massive pontoon bridge built well below the Confederate eyes across the James River. Uh, He did that very, very well. Now, he was aided, I think, a little bit by 
some poor reconnaissance work by the Confederate commander on the south side of the James. General Beauregard, who performed very competently during the actual fighting between June 15th and 18th, was culpable, I think, for not recognizing one of the largest military bridges ever constructed in world history. It was uh, He had a system of scouts that were supposedly uh, observing all potential crossing points on the James River, but somehow, for a matter of of 72 hours, he missed this gigantic bridge. And uh, one of the controversies of the campaign that I tried to deal with was, you know, to the de- the degree to which Lee is culpable for yes, allowing sir. Grant to get across the James without the Army of Northern Virginia intervening. And uh, I think that uh, I think that Lee was fooled, but he had every reason to believe that he had to protect Richmond first. And he wasn't getting very good information from his partner south of the James, General Beauregard. Now, Grant has a partner south of the James as well, uh, and and he's not getting good service there either. Uh, With General Butler, right? Could you talk about the uh, the first attempt to capture Petersburg? Is, is even be before the crossing of the James? Is this sort of? Uh, uh, flurry of uh, a couple regiments of infantry and a uh, cavalry, small cavalry brigade try to break into Richmond uh, in June 9th. Uh, how, how, how did that come about? How did that go? Well, that was, that was General Butler's, uh, it was about his, his second or third effort to try to uh, get into Petersburg. And I'm not sure that he, his intentions were to capture the city. I think his intentions were to destroy the communications across the Appomattox River, the, the railroad and the wagon bridge, to isolate the Petersburg forces from reinforcements from north of the Appomattox River. But uh, Beauregard was, I mean, Butler was, uh, was let down by his subordinates. Uh, he had an infantry body under a man named Quincy Gilmore, and his cavalry was commanded by a fellow named August Couts. Gilmore gave up uh, his part of the bargain very early on and was most culpable. Couts actually broke through the Confederate line south of town, but uh, when Confederate reinforcements arrived, he thought discretion was the better part of valor and retreated as well. Uh, Incidentally, Jerry, that engagement, a relatively small one, on June the 9th is really the one day in Petersburg today that the local historical community still recognizes. Um, The Battle of Old Men and Young Boys, as it's called. The rest of the story of Petersburg, with maybe the exception of the Battle of the Crater, is something that uh, culturally has not really paid much attention to in the city of Petersburg. That's... I find that very interesting that that they they don't recognize that. Um, so well, the, you know, Petersburg was a terrible. I mean, it was an awful ordeal for the people mm-hmm. who lived in lived in town. And now I'm talking about you know historically the the, the predominantly white community in Petersburg, right? The, the folks who have Confederate ancestors and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's something that it was a miserable. 292 days for those folks, and it's something, and they lost. It was the big loss. So in a way, it's kind of understandable why 
that community just as soon would move on and not try to not try to remember much about what happened. And you know, the Petersburg National Battlefield, originally called the Petersburg National Military Park, mm-hmm. wasn't established until well after World War One, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Unlike Gettysburg and Shiloh and Antietam and Chickamauga. Uh, and other, the, the, the original and Vicksburg, the original five national military parks. So I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but uh, one of the reasons that I think that Petersburg has been neglected historiographically is because it has not received, um, it had never received that kind of, of civic pride that, uh, say, motivated people here in Chattanooga to create a, a national military park in the 1890s. But to get back to your to get back to the story of, of the crossing of the James and the first offensive, one of the things that I found a little surprising that I didn't I try to whenever I write a book I try not to go into the book with any preconceived notions. I try to let the right. evidence speak for itself. But I had to confess I'm from Illinois originally. I grew up with Ulysses S. Grant as one of the you know the hometown heroes, mm-hmm. and. I've always thought that Grant was an outstanding commander, so I guess I approached this topic with the uh, the idea that Grant would perform well. And it turns out that I I think that Grant performed very very poorly during those first six weeks of the campaign, and particularly during the initial battle on June the fifteenth. And when I say he performed poorly, it was more of a matter of lack of communication and lack of personal leadership. Uh, that Not to get too deep into the weeds of the story here, but mm-hmm. that first attack depended on cooperation between Butler, commanding the Army of the James, Meade, commanding the Army of the Potomac, and the two corps commanders, William F. Smith under Butler and Winfield Scott Hancock under Meade, all being on the same page in order to carry out Grant's idea of capturing the city on June 15th. And amazingly, after conducting this brilliant maneuver to the James, Grant ceased communicating with these people. And those four men never got the same information from General Grant. And as a result, it was a bit of a comedy of errors. uh, And primarily the reason that the attack failed was because Hancock and Butler and Meade and Smith didn't really know what they were supposed to do. Uh, and, of course, I go into some detail on that in the book, but and that, and that, you have to put that on Grant, I think. Well, I, I thought that was striking how little Lee, as you mentioned earlier, and Grant uh, seemed to value Petersburg at this time. We know in retrospect how much time and, and blood it will eventually cost. So we have the advantage of hindsight, but uh, Lee really leaves it dangling out there. He leaves Beauregard in, in charge with the garrison, but it's very small. And Grant seemingly could have <coughs> sent uh, troops in there had he focused on it. But as you say, he doesn't give explicit orders uh, or, or, or hands-on direction to Meade or uh, Not or at Butler. all. And and so, so you have this attack. So you have the attack of the the young, the battle of the old men and young boys on June 9th, which uh, the name of which sounds like a, a 
Catholic institutional scandal to me. Um, and then you have the uh, uh, then you have the the first real attack with the Army of the Potomac involved on June fifteenth. And you do see some some moments. I, I just mentioned that tactical bit where one commander uses a different formation instead of mm-hmm. two deep lines crossing an open field. He has them spread out, single line. Uh, yard or two between each man, and they don't take heavy casualties, and they do get in and, and to the enemy position. And this is, you know, the kind of thing Upton was experimenting with in uh, uh, during the Overland campaign. So that that attack on June fifteenth has some remarkable tactical success. You see, uh, you describe the United States Colored Troops in their first engagements uh, in this field uh, being very successful, capturing uh, big chunks of the Dimmock line, the Confederate uh, defensive position. And it looks like Petersburg is open for the taking. Just follow up and and you just want to grab someone by the scruff of the neck and say, we can save months and months of siege work. Just go on in. But no one does that. Well, that's right, and you know, and that's been one of I think that's the the standard criticism. Uh, and that was another topic uh, that I had to deal with when I started to conceptualize this book, this mm-hmm. entire series. I spent quite a bit of time with my knowledge of the campaign, writing down uh, a list, a relatively long list of topics that are controversial having to do right. with Petersburg and telling myself, all right, you have an obligation to address mm-hmm. all these controversies and to render some sort of an opinion. I think that's, I think that's in, uh, something that every author who writes military history should do. Mm-hmm. And so one of them was, did the Federals blow it on June 15th by not pursuing the defeated Confederates into the city? And if so, who was at fault? And, of course, Baldy Smith is the one who traditionally gets all the blame Mm-hmm. For that, he's a very unlikable fellow in many ways, and easy to uh, ascribe blame to. But you know, when you sat and you looked, really looked at that situation. Here it was, you know, it was pitch black. Uh, the Confederates, Smith and Hancock, really didn't know what the Confederates had waiting for them beyond that first line that they had captured. Smith was under the impression that um, with the captured Confederate line as it was, he could place his artillery in range of the city, and that in itself would compel the Confederates to evacuate. And so they decided that they would simply wait until the next morning. And this is where Beauregard starts to come in and starts to shine. Uh, He has responsibility. He has two divisions in his army. Uh, But he has responsibility for all the territory south of the James, including that long stretch at Bermuda 100 uh, opposite General Butler. And so uh, Beauregard makes the bold and correct decision to essentially evacuate the Bermuda 100 line and bring those reinforcements down to Petersburg. And assisted by a junior officer named Johnson Haygood of South Carolina, He's able to create a new defense line, which was in position when the sun came up on June 16th. And uh, that position was defended for two days, uh, despite a number of spasmodic attacks by the Army of the Potomac, which was 
gradually accreting on the south side of the James River. And here I think, and this is nothing, I didn't come up with anything original here. I think <laughs> the conventional wisdom is right. And that the explanation for that primarily is the depleted condition of the Army of the Potomac and its leadership. Uh, it had bled so severely during the Overland Campaign and had lost so many field and line officers of experience that when General Meade pressed the button to make his machine go into action, the machine just whirred and didn't go forward very very efficiently. And I think you can lay that on the attrition uh, that the Army of the Potomac experienced at all levels uh, during the previous five weeks. Well, well that makes a lot of sense because, as, as you say, on the 16th and 17th, you have these... Uh, and up through the 18th, these disjointed and unsuccessful attacks. Uh, this almost blends into the, the second offensive a few days later, the, the Battle of Jerusalem Plank Road, uh, which, as you described, many many Union observers said it was the worst day in the history of the Second Corps, the legendary Corps that Hancock had led at Gettysburg, now suffers uh, just a disaster. So... Right. By, by the end of June, you've got the, the federal army that is, is essentially played out, uh, but they are on the south side of the James River. They are threatening the one railroad that links Petersburg and Richmond to the rest of the south, uh, down through Weldon, North Carolina. There are other railroads to the west that would, would also serve, but the main route due south is, is vulnerable. So uh, both sides are in a difficult position at that point. Uh, we're in position to take another break right now, so we'll do that uh, and come back in just a moment, talking more with A. Wilson Green, author of A Campaign of Giants, The Battle for Petersburg, Volume 1, From the Crossing of the James to the Crater. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Will Green, author of The Campaign of Giants, The Battle for Petersburg, Volume 1, From the Crossing of the James to the Crater. Uh, Will, as I was reading this book, I wanted to point out to the listeners first how good the maps are in the book. They really make very clear the tactical and operational interactions. It's a it's not just a battlefield, but a whole campaign uh, theater that you're describing, and the maps at different scales are always really clear and useful. And I also wanted to stress the importance of visiting the site, uh, listeners, if you possibly can. Uh, I don't I don't know if this is just a personal reaction, but as I was reading about uh, the fighting on June fifteenth, my first thought was. Okay, he's talking about Battery 5. I've been in Battery 5. I know where that is. I can picture what he's talking about. I know the slope down that the Union troops had to go up to get to the the, 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 the battery position there. Uh, when we talk about the crater, of course, we'll, we'll discuss in just a moment. Uh, I've been to the crater. I, I know what it looks like today. Uh, having the advantage of seeing these places m- made the reading very easy very very easy to see in one in the mind's eye uh coupled with the excellent maps uh i've just been devouring this book uh because well i I appreciate that and you gave a shameless plug to your own tour at the beginning absolutely if if i may uh mention that uh, yes uh, i'm going to be leading uh, a couple of tours that are going to cover the all of the sites that I mentioned in in this book. The first one will be in May, and it's sponsored by a group called America's History LLC, mm-hmm. and they have a website. And the second tour will be in September, and it's sponsored by the Blue and Gray Education Society, and they mm-hmm. also have a website. The itineraries will be very similar, almost identical, just two different groups, one in the spring and one in the fall. And, you know, I couldn't agree with you more, Jerry, about the importance of visiting the terrain in order to understand what happens in military history. And one of the things about, you mentioned Battery 5 and the Crater, which, of course, are, are on the main tour road at mm-hmm. Petersburg National Battlefield. But a lot of what I talk about is off of the tour road and in places that people um, people don't go to. And that's one of mm-hmm. the things we're going to do on these tours and uh, maybe I'd love to do that with you someday. You know, show you the rest of these batteries and Absolutely. show you the, where the Shand House Hill was, for example, and and go on the Wilson Couts raid um, and go to Reem Station. And uh, there's so much of the Petersburg story that is not physically preserved, but mm-hmm. it's still there. When I say physically preserved, not intentionally maintained by a preservation or interpretation agency. But thankfully, most of the Petersburg sites 
not all, but most of them are still ripe for preservation. And our friends at the American Battlefield Trust and other groups have been doing a splendid job of filling in the gaps. Uh, but there's a lot of a lot of the Petersburg story that I go into in this first volume, and that I will in the subsequent volumes. That mm-hmm. is still out there to see, but you have to know where you're going, and so uh, there's no substitute for for doing that on a on a tour with someone who allegedly knows something about it. That is absolutely right. That is by far the best way to do it. Um, Michael Weeks, who's been on the sh- the show, is the author of uh, a couple really good. Uh, volumes of, of travel guides, uh, Civil War right. sites, and he goes to a lot of these places. I've used that, and I've been to uh, a number of the places in Petersburg that are not marked except for a, maybe a Civil War trails marker or an old historic plaque uh, and, and these off-the-beaten-path bits, but I would love to do that with you sometime. And listeners, if you can go on Will's tour, uh, check that out, Blue and Gray Education Society, and uh, was it America's History? America's uh, History LLC, yeah. America's History uh, LLC. They're based out of out of the Richmond area. Yeah, check those out, and and uh, if you can go on his tours, listeners, you will get your money's worth. I guarantee that. Um, you, we were talking about the Army of the Potomac being worn out by the Overland Campaign, contributing to its failure in the first two offensives. Uh, in uh, Sondergren's book on the uh, both. Uh, the Army of the Potomac mm-hmm. in both campaigns, he makes the same point that the Army is completely played out at, at this time. And then in the rest of his book, he argues that the Petersburg siege parts of the, the, the that followed was actually rejuvenating for the Army. It wasn't didn't wear them down further. It actually brought them back up because they were down so low. Um, and that goes beyond what you've written about here, but I'm curious uh, about your take on that. Well, I'm going to be. I, I read I read Stephen's book and I found it mm-hmm. very very good, very well done. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll be interested to see evaluate the evidence that I've accumulated to see if that's true. I think on the surface it makes a lot of sense, Jerry, because sure. instead of these constant marches and battles that punctuated the campaign from you know May fourth all the way through basically June eighteenth and mm-hmm. continue it on to June twenty third. Sure. There were breaks, you know, between the between the major battles, right. and there were also um, new recruits coming in uh, to the army, and some of these line officers uh, had an opportunity to get to know their troops a little bit better. You could never underestimate the influence of a captain on the combat efficiency of a unit, and if you've got a, some guy who was, you know, maybe the senior sergeant all of a sudden thrust into that role in a combat situation. It's going to take that fella some time to get mm-hmm. the trust and confidence of his men. So I think as time went on, it, it, does, it does make sense that, that the Army of the Potomac would get a little bit stronger. I, I wish we had way more time, only five minutes or so. The crater is the one thing everybody knows about the campaign. And you do an excellent job in this volume talking about controversies, and few battles are more controversial than the crater. Uh, let me ask uh, so a question right up front. As I'm sure our listeners know, the initial plan for the crater was to dig a mine, blow it up, and send in a division of troops, most of whom were USCT regiments. And at the last moment, that gets changed. Uh, why, why did it get changed? 
Well, there are a couple of reasons that are offered by Meade and Grant in their post-war or the, the post-battle writings and post-war writings, and I think mm-hmm. both of them are plausible. One is that uh, Meade was always a bit skeptical uh, about the um, uh, efficacy of this of this combat plan and, and the mine itself, for that matter. And when it, it, it appeared that it was actually going to go forward, and I should I'll interject the the, the point that I made in the book, mm-hmm. I'm not sure everybody has really grasped, is that the mine explosion and the subsequent attack was not Grant's initial idea for the third offensive. He had focused on actions north of the James River as his mm-hmm. primary offensive. And when that failed, but did draw Confederate troops away from Petersburg to the north side of the James, then and only then did the mine enter Grant's real strategic or operational thinking. Mm-hmm. So there's a really a relatively short amount of time that the high command, Meade and Grant, focused on this battle. It had been Burnside's game all the way along. And so when at the 11th hour it looks like this attack is going to go forward, Meade doesn't want to trust a division of troops who had literally never been in combat before with what was obviously going to be a very tricky and unique uh, operation. So that's one reason. And the other reason was a political one, which I think has got some legs too, and that was that if this risky plan failed and the black troops were the ones who led the attack and were slaughtered, it would be claimed that the administration cared nothing about the African-American soldiers. And that, was a, that, would, that would have been a detriment to the Lincoln re-election process. And the moral uh, moral status of the Union Army's effort to end slavery. So those two reasons are the ones that are offered, and I think uh, in some combination they are the explanation for why Meade pulled the plug on the black troops. Uh, I mean, race plays a major factor in this battle. You talk about the, the Confederates' response, their rage at encountering black troops, not just at the crater but throughout the whole campaign, but, but especially so here. Uh, there's a there's an audio exhibit at the crater now the National Park Service has prepared, uh, which cites a Union soldier claiming that at the height of the fighting there were Union soldiers who white Union soldiers who took the lives of their black comrades as a way of demonstrating to the Confederates that they weren't with them that they weren't part of the black units they weren't white officers over black soldiers. Uh, that they shouldn't also be uh, slaughtered rather than taken prisoner, which was the fate of so many of the black troops. Uh, did you encounter any evidence of anything like that? I did. I did. There was. There are a couple of uh, eyewitness accounts that verify that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I. I and I, again, I think that's plausible. You don't read a lot about that, um, no. but uh, there was a, there was enough um, racial animosity amongst white soldiers in the Army of the Potomac to make any kind of prejudicial, prejudicial behavior against black troops plausible to me. So yeah, I ran into a little bit of evidence of that, uh, not a lot, but I think it probably happened in isolated in isolated instances. But I think what struck me the most, Jerry. Mm-hmm. was the degree of uh, atrocities that were committed yeah. at, at the crater. I 
everybody's aware in some vague way that the Confederates didn't take as many prisoners with the African-American troops, etc. But mm-hmm. the, um, the vitriol and the hatred uh, and just the, the sheer glee of murdering these people was astonishing to me and, and upsetting, frankly. Mm-hmm. And it begs the question, why would otherwise honorable Confederate soldiers who, for the most part, adhered strictly to the to the rules and mores of the social period and the and military mm-hmm. and military protocol. Why would they do what they did? Uh, it, uh, it's, it, it's an open it, question. It, it is, uh, and an important one. And and one reason why this book is is more than just a you know who shot John connection of collection of battle stories. Uh, the uh, Another subtext that runs through your your writing here is how the the Army of the Potomac white soldiers often were very prejudiced against their their black colleagues, but the performance in battle of USCT regiments was not ignored and did actually have an effect. That uh, you, you you quote soldiers writing home that to their surprise the black troops uh, performed admirably in many cases. Uh, with just well, two minutes yeah, left, that's, I, I, that's right. I, yeah, oh, go ahead. Uh, there's, you know, there's a wide, there's, there was just like, you know, it's, it's just impossible to generalize about that. You right. had the whole range of reactions among white, white troops toward their black comrades. Mm-hmm. Some uh, were thrilled that the black troops had done so well and said, I told you so all along. Others begrudgingly said, yeah, they did pretty well. They're not as good as us, but they did pretty well. Then others would say, well, sure, let's put them in. I mean, they can take a bullet as well, well as we can. Mm-hmm. And then there were others who said, I don't care, you know, they, these, these, they, I don't even want to serve with these black troops anymore. They're terrible. And they received most of the, the black division received the lion's share of the blame for the defeat at the crater uh, right. from Union soldiers. You read their letters, and, and four out of five Union soldiers said that the reason they lost the Battle of the Crater was that the black troops ran when the Confederates counterattacked, which wasn't true, but that, that, that was a reflection of the prejudice against them that had not disappeared by July 30th, 1864. By, by no means. Speaking of time, uh, the, the timetable for publication is, is the question now on, on any reader's mind. Uh, uh, where do you go next? Uh, what should we look forward to? Well, I'm... I was, I'm working pretty hard on uh, doing the research for volumes two and three, and, and uh, I would expect that uh, I'll probably have a couple of more years of research. My bibliography, Jerry, on my computer is 495 pages long. So there is a, a gigantic amount of material out there on Petersburg, and I'm not trying to be anal compulsive and read everything, mm-hmm. but I, I do want to turn over as many stones as I can. So maybe... Maybe uh, three or four years, volume two. Okay. Well, that that gives us plenty of time to digest this, uh, which, again, I have to say, it, it, there's a, a sweet spot, and, and there are others uh, writing about about this campaign. I think both Newsom and Summers, they, they do go into more tactical detail, but they not at the expense of losing the big picture, uh, and, and you very much do the same here in terms of, of keeping the reader aware why these units are going where they are, as, as well as describing the actual 
engagements in some detail. You also talk a great deal about command relationships, uh, uh, Lee and his subordinates, uh, Grant and his subordinates, Butler, Burnside, Warren, uh, all these guys, Meade, of course, uh, and, and go into detail on that. We don't have any more time to talk about it tonight, so listeners, you have to go out and get yourself a copy of A Campaign of Giants, The Battle for Petersburg, Volume 1, From the Crossing of the James to the Crater by A. Wilson Green, who has been our guest tonight. Uh, Will, I really enjoyed the book and enjoyed talking with you as always. I hope we can get together soon. Well, thank you, Jerry, and I appreciate what you do for public history. You're one of our heroes that has a foot in both the academic and public history worlds, and we really appreciate you. And listeners, as always, we appreciate you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.